end to lost technology. Was there an ancient advanced society? How did the ancients decipher reality and has the concept of time itself changed since the classical era? Hello, this is Anya Leonard, founder and director of Classical Wisdom. You are listening to Classical Wisdom Speaks, a podcast dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. This Classical Wisdom Speaks episode is with Dr. Benjamin B. Olshin, retired professor of philosophy, history, and philosophy of science and technology, and design at the University of Arts in Philadelphia. Dr. Olshin is a researcher, musician, artist, consultant, and author of several books, including Lost Knowledge, Deciphering Reality, and The Mysteries of the Marco Polo Maps. We will discuss the way the ancients understood their world, reality, and time, as well as how they transmitted technology. But before we begin, a quick thank you to our Classical Wisdom Society members who make this podcast possible. If you would like to become a society member and help support the classics, please go to classicalwisdom.com and click start here. Now, on to ancient technology, time, and reality. And I'd like to talk about actually your most recent book, Lost Knowledge. Uh, is that your most recent one? Yes. But yes, Lost Knowledge is the most recent one. It was out just about a year or so ago. Um, so it's called Lost Knowledge, the Concept of Vanished Technologies and Other Human Histories, uh, which I think just sounds absolutely fascinating and sort of captivating from the get-go. Um, maybe you can start us off by sort of explaining a little bit some of the lost technologies that you're referring to. Um, so that's a great question. And yeah, it's a, it's a funny title and it was a, a difficult title to, to settle on because there's kind of a history of books that talk about ancient technology. And if you're a classicist or a person with any kind of classical knowledge, you may know some of these. So uh, the most famous probably is uh, an author named K.D. White, uh, who wrote a book called Greek and Roman Technology. And it has these beautiful illustrations of everything from mills to you know, uh, navigation systems, et cetera, that the Greeks and Romans devised. And I love that stuff, and I got interested in that stuff probably in high school, and then I had a very wonderful professor in graduate school who actually did research on the Antikythera mechanism, you know, the Greek computer mechanism. So I liked that, and I wasn't going to write a book about that stuff, because people had done it well and are doing it well. Um, so what I thought was, well, that's interesting. And then in Eastern culture, we have science and civilization in China. Joseph Needham wrote this incredible work uh, that looks at that, and that's actually an ongoing project. But what I got interested in, because it was less explored, was two aspects. One is that you have cultures that have technical knowledge that are pre-literate or non-literate cultures. So they know things about medicine, you know, botanical medicine. They know things about navigation. They know things about agriculture and astronomy, but it's all transmitted orally or through demonstration. And the analogy I always use, it's like you learn to ride a bike, not by reading a book, right? Um, a lot of uh, women, when they are pregnant and give birth, I learned this stuff, you know, by seeing it, you, you don't read a lot of books. Like my wife refused to read any book when she was pregnant. You talk to your mom, you talk to other women, you know, et cetera. So there's so much knowledge that's transmitted that way. So one aspect of the book was that. 
and that how knowledge that's transmitted that way can become lost because people either forget the stories, the rituals, the dances, the performances, or what happens, and this is a very interesting topic, is that people remember the rituals, they forget the content. And I have to say, I was very influenced by uh, a writer named William Irwin Thompson. Uh, he gave a talk many, many years ago in New York, and he talked about the Rapunzel fairy tale, how that's actually encoded botanical information. Uh, Little Red Riding Hood also is encoded information. But what happens is you ask 30 students, they all know the story, or even worse, they know the Disney version, but they don't know the content anymore. Uh, Freemasonry is another inter interesting example. All kinds of rituals that the Masons have forgot what the content is. So a whole strand of the book was that. And the other strand was, as I was reading many of these stories about technologies, I found some very fantastical technologies. So you'll find Chinese stories about flying devices and Hopi stories about how people climb on a shield and go from place to place. You know, it's the stuff you see in ancient aliens on the TV show. But I became interested in this idea that ancient peoples speculated on technology, that they thought about very strange kind of devices. And then the final element was that you even find in ancient sources pretty sophisticated idea, which is that a society can develop technologies to such a point that they implode. And this is what I kind of jokingly call, I don't think I say this in the book, but when I lecture on it, I call the planet of the apes scenario, where human beings destroy themselves through excessive technology. So the book kind of delves deeply into those two strands of ancient thought. And you find this in Greek sources and Plato. And then I do a kind of comparative study because you find it in indigenous literature and Arabic literature in Chinese sources, et cetera. Uh, there is so much interesting things you've just said there. <laughs> I don't know where to begin. Um, so maybe I'll start with the, the mythology. Um, it's really interesting about that idea that we have um, information encoded in oral mythology without knowing it. And just thinking of a, a modern example, uh, I remember during the Boxing Day tsunami, I, I don't know if you remember, there was a tribe, uh, I think it was somewhere in, maybe Indonesia or something like that, that, that they had a story that if the ocean ever goes out to run up a hill. And mm. sure enough, the ocean went out, which is a sign of a tsunami coming, and everybody ran up the hill. And that one particular village who had had that oral story all survived because they knew what to do, which is just- And a story like that probably would not be so literal. There would be some metaphor, like when the waters are consumed, you know, and you find that it's encoded in all kind of allegorical language and, you know, stupid Westerners read it literally, but indigenous peoples understand those. Yeah. And it saved their life. Absolutely. That's, that's a perfect example. of that. Do you have um, any examples that from the ancient world of a myth that would have had a story like that? Well, the example I use in class a lot that I think Bruno Bettelheim talks about in his book is the Rapunzel story. And one of the interesting things about Rapunzel story and, and Little Red Riding Hood is that those stories actually go back to the ancient world. So that's one thing you know, that has to be understood. Um, there was also a book, and now I'm forgetting the title, that talks about the Homeric myths 
as encoding astronomical information. Um, so that's another example. There's, there's, again, for people who are listening to this program, watching this program, there's a great book called Hamlet's Mill, and it basically looks at the ancient world and any number of stories that contain coded information, particularly about astronomy. And that's probably the most common one you'll find because ancient peoples had to understand calendrical systems for planting, harvesting, etc. I like uh, the Little Red Riding Hood because it's an easy one to teach. And it's funny, so you tell students, tell me the Little Red Riding Hood story, which again goes back to the ancient world, and they say, well, you know, there's this girl and she's dressed in red and she encounters this wolf. And of course, the entire story is a narrative about a mother telling a daughter who's just hit puberty, which is symbolized by the red, you know, the menstrual color, to watch out for men. And it's very funny that in Chinese, the word for a man who's a predator is silang, which means a wolf, essentially. So that's a great example that I like to use in teaching because it's sort of shocking and it makes sense. The story that would relate to classical knowledge that you're interested in is one that I talk about in the book, which is the Ring of Gyges. Do you know this story? Yes. Uh, is it, it's not the Lord of the Rings, but it's close. <laughs> Well, the Lord of the Rings uh, was influenced by the Ring of Gyges. So the Ring of Gyges is uh, like a couple pages in Plato in the Republic. And what's interesting is that Plato is citing the story. So it's actually a folk tale that exists in other sources in the ancient world. And then Plato just has one version. And the Ring of Gyges is interesting because, yeah, it's a morality tale. It's about a ring, a magic ring that makes you invisible. And this is why Tolkien takes that and runs with the kind of moral aspect. But in my book, what I found interesting about the story is that it's this very kind of mundane folktale. You know, a shepherd finds this ring, uh, realizes it can make him invisible. He then conspires to kill the king and marry the queen, right? But what's interesting is when you dig down into this story, you find many more symbols. De again, deeply encoded. One of the things folktales do is they super condense stuff, right? Because you have to have a story that you can tell like that. And, and when we read it or listen to it, we have to unpack those things. And one of the things I was telling my students the other day in class is that in a folktale, and I probably got this from listening to Thompson, um, nothing is wasted. So, you know, poems and stories are very efficient. So they eliminate anything that's not symbolic, that doesn't carry meaning. So like in Little Red Riding, the wolf carries meaning, the grandma carries meaning, the forest. So in the Ring of Gaiji's story, the setting and uh, the different things that Gaiji sees all carry meaning. And we can talk about that deeper if you want, but that's sort of my favorite example from the classical world of a story that contains hidden knowledge, and in particular, it contains technological knowledge, which is, you know, why I use it for my book. Uh, it makes me. I. I. I'm very afraid that I'm misattributing this quote completely and butchering the quote. But I feel like some. <laughs> this is a quote that might have existed. That Einstein said something along the lines of, "If you want intelligent children, read them fairy tales." Uh, it may be, yeah. I mean, he's also, uh, he has the quote about using imagination and not just sort of empirical, logical thinking. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, fairy tales, 
we're the vehicle to teach children. You know, this idea of book learning and formalized schooling is really, really recent um, historical artifact. It's sort of this, I tell my students, like a Prussian school system to sit in a row of chairs listening to an instructor. It's, it's very, very recent invention. Um, and so one of the jobs I think of a historian is to go and look at different ancient stories and unpack them. And you can go too far with this. There's a famous French linguist named Saussure. I don't know if you know Saussure. And he, he did this and he kind of looked for meaning in almost everything, which can be a little bit excessive. But certainly things like the other great example is the Atlantis story. And I actually did a podcast. I was invited to do a podcast because that's also in the book. But the Atlantis story by modern people is either taken completely literally or completely as fiction. And if you really read it carefully, and there's some good modern commentaries on this as well, it's obviously encoded information because it has the symbolic structure of the circles, the concentric rings, the numbers, the, but we've forgotten what it is. And there are probably hundreds of things like that in, in the books right behind you. There's lobe editions, you know. There, there's stuff in Cicero and in later authors like Macrobius. There's no question. Please go ahead. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm still always sad about the burning of the Library of Alexandria because you just think of all the things that have been lost. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, and so what you have is, is decontextualized stories. You know, so people read the Ring of Gyges and they read it one way. And you know, when I was researching that, every single source, all they talked about was its morality tale. But ancient people weren't so stupid. You know, they, they would understand all the multiple other lessons being projected by these things or, you know, a story like the Odyssey or anything like that. Um, yeah, I often think about that. I'm a big fan of Sappho. And... Um, you know, people love to sort of project modern situations on her. And you and it's interesting, though, because when the ancients had their her entire codex at their dis, dis I was going to say it in Spanish <laughs> at their availability, um, that, that they <laughs> that, that they had a very different interpretation of her poetry than that we like to have. And so it's interesting because you said we were missing so much context and we're missing so many other references and and you know sequels and prequels and right. all that stuff that really um fills out that information uh but i also wanted to touch on the, the technology bit as well mm -hmm. the, the second part of your book um we had uh, adrian mayer on the podcast as well oh, yeah. to talk about uh ancient robots and uh, the idea that you know people were envisioning technology before they created it uh which I just think is is such a eye opener uh, with regards right. to the world that, that that how imaginative they could be with technology. When her book came out, it's funny. It came out roughly the same time mine did, and I I emailed her, and she was very polite. She was sort of the the model thinker. She was polite. And she emailed me right back, and she promoted my book on her site, and then I cited her book and and a presentation I gave. And so it turned out we had sort of stumbled across this same idea where there's technological speculation among ancient people. So robots, for example, uh, the example I used was in the Arabian Nights. I find this very, to me, very interesting story uh, called The City of Brass, and it mentions robots that are guards of this abandoned city. Um, and then I told her in, in the email, I said, there's a whole nother technological aspect to that story as well. But yeah, wonderful book and wonderful person. Uh, 
you know, investigating the same kind of stuff. In, in my book, the chapters are divided up in these different speculations. So speculations on flight, speculations on remote communication, like video, uh, speculations on um, uh, this idea, as I said, that technology can develop to such a point that it implodes. So you find very, very sophisticated ideas. And then I kind of like look at where they could come from, which gets, I mean, that's like, would merit a whole separate program. It's a really difficult idea in terms of investigating the ancient mind. So this is a question I've got. So um, I'm a big fan of the pre-Socratics, uh, which I don't like calling them pre-Socratics because I feel like that's delegating them, relegating them to too much of a category. I was like, no, we should call them the first philosophers or something. I'm, I'm working on a campaign to give them a, a new, new branding. Um, but a lot of the things that they came up with, uh, you know, are so mind-boggling advanced. Um, and you wonder that, like, how were they able to do that without telescopes, without microscopes? Um, and then I sort of juxtapose that to the idea of, like, I often think of Caligula's Nimi ships, which, you know, had the, the ball bearings that were discovered and, you know, I think, what was it, uh, when Mussolini drained the, sh the lakes. Yeah, and, and they found these amazing technology that, that was produced under Caligula. And then when they sort of did the, the Donatio Arone and, you know, kind of wanted to get rid of all evidence of him because he was so hated, they, they sunk these ships. And some of the technology in there was so advanced that we didn't realize that they had that. They weren't reinvented until the, the Renaissance. So my question, uh, by long preamble, uh, is... Are there cool technologies you think that maybe that they, is there any like literary evidence or some idea that maybe they actually did invent a lot of these things that were like, maybe they did have telescopes or something? Well, this is very interesting you asked that. And, you know, unfortunately, I got to give you a complicated answer. So when you're writing an academic book, right, and I was writing this for Brill, the publisher in the Netherlands, and they were, they were great, by the way. And they assigned me two manuscript readers. Uh, one was American, one was Australian. Very nice guys, and both did like history of technology. They were kind of nerdy. And we had this discussion. They happened to be in Philadelphia. I took them out to dinner. And the problem is, if you're too speculative, then you're like Von Anakin or Graham Hancock. You know, you know what I mean? I'm talking about that. So I couldn't sort of go there and say like, yeah, there were these advanced technologies and then they were lost. You know, they were brought to us by aliens or an advanced race. But then I also didn't want to go the other way, which is just this boring academic thing. And not just because it's boring, because I didn't believe it, which just say like, well, they had this idea, but then they didn't develop it. Or maybe they stumbled across the idea ball bearings or flight. So I, I spent a lot of time in kind of the opening chapters and the closing chapters of the book to give a really honest answer to exactly what you're asking. And so my thought is that it's very difficult to say, you know, because we don't have archaeological evidence for certain things. Like we have archaeological evidence that the Romans had plumbing. We know that lead pipes. I've seen them in Bath, England, and I've seen them in Rome. But we don't have archaeological evidence for things like uh, flying vehicles. You know, I was talking to my daughter about this. I said, I hope I live long enough 
that they're digging in Mongolia one day and they find these Chinese ancient aircraft. That would be great because I can say I wrote the book about this. So in the book, I take a kind of skeptical tone. I, I do these stories as speculative. But to me, what was interesting was that almost all of these cultures from, you know, the Hopi native peoples of the Americas to the Chinese, um, and you find these in other stories, they all have a very narrative of where they say these technologies are from. And the narrative, and this gets us back to the Rengaiji story, is always that there was an advanced civilization that had these technologies that collapsed, and now what we have are just these fragmentary stories. So my point is that in ancient times, people were having the same conversation you and I are having. So this is what's remarkable, that they were very knowledgeable of this idea that things tend to go to ground, right, and disappear and leave only fragments. So you'll read like in the Chinese text, for example, like uh, there was this, uh, you know, emperor that commissioned this flying vehicle, vehicle to be built to go from place to place. Now there are only stories that remain. You know, and they say this, they're, they're quite explicit about this. Um, again, in my reading of the Ring of Gyges, I guess I'll, I'll try to describe this quickly. If you read the story in Plato and in other sources, Gyges, there's an earthquake. Gyges, the shepherd, goes down into this opening in the earth, which you know is bad because going down in Plato is bad. It's the cave. And then he finds this huge bronze horse. That's bad, right? Because Troy. So anybody listening to this story would know it was bad. And then what's interesting is that inside this bronze horse is a naked body. That's bad because no culture inters their body naked. There's all these negative connotations. And then the body is described as giant. And in every ancient source, there's this idea of a race of giants, metaphorically or literally, again, an advanced civilization. And then he finds this ring, which has technical powers. So that whole narrative right there is an example of this. Distant past, advanced civilization destroyed itself. It obviously destroyed itself because technology without morality, there you go. And then in, in the same author in Plato, Atlantis tale, same thing, same thing. So whatever we believe or watch on, you know, the sci-fi or history channel, that's one thing. But these to your question by saying, oh yeah, there was an advanced civilization before us. No question about it. They invented all this stuff. We have bits and pieces. And, and you find that narrative over and over and over again. And I, I found that really, really interesting. So Yeah, it's super fascinating. I mean, I guess it, it, you're totally right where you have to be cautious because, you know, people do kind of get carried away with those ideas as well. But um, just because it's fantastic doesn't mean it's not true either. You know what I mean? It's, you can't say one or the other. Like you have to be, keep an open mind, but be critical. Right, exactly. And, and as you say, I mean, there's certainly physical evidence of things that were quite sophisticated that are oddly decontextualized. Now, the example I use when I teach are a lot of stone structures. Like one of my favorite is in Baalbek, Lebanon, and I've never been able to see this in person, but there are these stones that weigh 2 million pounds, literally 2 million pounds. And, you know, I have a friend who does 
stonework. And he said, yeah, you can carve that with enough time. But it still kind of is this question of this highly sophisticated way of doing things that kind of appears and then it's gone like that. And there's this suggestion and there was something. And you know, one of my dreams is to work closely with an archeologist and together we can match textual accounts with some physical evidence. And then that would affirm, you know, what you're talking about speculatively. Well, and you think like, I mean, we've already seen the pattern. We, I mean, we've seen the pattern several times because we obviously had the dark ages and, and such. And we look at like the paintings of Giotto or something and we're like, oh, wow, look, they're just starting to get 3D again. And then you go right. back, you know, thousands of years and you're like, wow, they knew how to paint so much better, you know. Right. Pele's or you know even the fire mummy portraits or you know and then right. similarly you think of the dark ages before the golden age of Athens you had the Mycenaeans so you're like we see this pattern that's happened so why would we assume that it didn't go further back I suppose right well I told my daughter you know in a, an example of very sophisticated knowledge you might know this is in Cicero or Seneca where they describe the earth has this tiny point in space. It's, it's making this kind of stoic point of like, why do we struggle and, and care about fame? We're just a speck in the universe. And she said, well, how could they even conceptualize that? Because in the modern period, you know, Earth Day was in 1970, after the first images of Earth viewed from space were disseminated to the public. And yet the Romans were able to conceptualize this thousands of years before, you know, so there, there are many examples and there you wonder, though, did they see it in some other way? It, it's very, very hard to say. And, and I should add, you know, for the sake of your program, I think this fits perfectly because you talk to a lot of academics. This is one of the, the issues with academic research is that these subjects that will just be untouched because they're either taken over by speculative television or they just die in academia. <laughs> So what you have to do is use very hard academic tools to examine this, to show how interesting this stuff is without killing it. And, and just as an aside, I remember I was invited, that was probably 10 years ago or more, to a conference on uh, very speculative uh, maps and exploration. It was all amateurs. It was up, I think, in Nova Scotia. There's guys that like believed that all these people had come to the Americas before Columbus. And the guy who invited me is a very nice guy. I said, why are you inviting me? And he says, we need like an academic to make everything sober, but that can talk to these people. And I said, perfect. And we had a great time and they respected me and I respected them. But in academia, this has been, you know, I'm able to do it because I teach at an arts institution. But I'm um, glad your program exists for this too. So. Definitely careful. So uh, I want to take another turn though, just um, because I know we don't have, tons of time. Uh, but I'd like to touch on your second book, uh, which I think kind of ties in a little bit with what we're saying about understanding reality. And your second book is Deciphering Reality, uh, which you sort of, it's sort of been described as sort of a combination of physics, philosophy, and consciousness. Um, and I think that's another really interesting part of, of ancient history and, and modern history and showing that, that those two things sort of interconnect still. Um, so how did the ancient Greeks sort of understand reality? Do you think they understood it very differently than we understand now? Right. Yeah, you had asked me that question in email, and it was great. And, and I actually typed down the answer because I said, I really want to give a clear answer to this. So 
I, I think the, the way I describe it when I teach, not to sound too pedantic, is a good way of talking about this. So if we look at how the ancient world viewed reality, we also have to be conscious of how uh, indigenous people view reality. Because I'm very interested in like native peoples and their thinking. So the way I talk about it when I teach is, is diachronic and synchronic. So in the present, synchronically, all you have to do is go to other cultures, and I think you mentioned this in your uh, email about Latin American cultures, and you see a totally different conception of time and, and space, et cetera. So synchronically, you can do this. So when you're in another culture, it's like being in humanity's past. And I was in places like Sri Lanka that were really clear examples of this. And then when you're asking about diachronically, absolutely, when we go to the ancient world in East or West, um, you see a very different view of reality itself. So the great example you asked about the Greeks is this idea of logos, right? So you find this in the Stoics most clearly. So when you explain to somebody what logos means, well, it means word, right? It also means reason, but it also means natural law. So how do those go together? And it's astonishing how difficult it is for students to understand this because we separate all those things out. But I said, look around you. Everything is a natural pattern. The pandemic spreads in a natural pattern. The fact that it arose is part of the natural pattern. The seasons change, natural pattern. The earth moves, natural pattern. So for ancient Greeks, A, they understood that reality followed a natural law. B, they also understood that we, as part of that natural law, have to function in accordance with that. And we have what I call valence, to use the kind of Latin word, we can negotiate with it, you know. Uh, we're not powerless, so it's not nihilistic, but we're made of the same stuff, so we have to adhere with that. So that concept of the ancient world is very different from ours. How? Because in the present, and I dog students about this all the time, because young people in particular were infused with this idea nowadays with agency. You know, and if you hear kids like in high school, they're taught, you can do whatever you want. You can be whatever you want. You can choose anything. You can choose your gender, your, your, your identity. Your, and I said, well, no, you can't because there are restrictions in terms of, of certain laws. You may be able to change certain things, including your gender, including your name, including your identity. But you also have to understand that there's this overarching natural law. And a much better thing, I think, to teach kids is we're like surfers, right? Where you can go someplace, but you're always in negotiation. So that's the big difference between the ancient world and our world in terms of view of reality. We view reality as out there and we're independent actors. They viewed reality as permeating everything. And the one way students get this is when they cite Star Wars, like the force is described as through the universe and through us, and then bam, they get it. So I think to answer your question, that's the biggest difference between the ancient view of reality and the contemporary view of reality. Thank you for listening to Classical Wisdom Speaks a podcast dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. Classical Wisdom Society members can listen to the entire podcast with Dr. Olshin on classicalwisdom.com. If you would like to learn more about Dr. Olshin's books, including Lost Knowledge and Deciphering Reality, as well as his diverse projects, 
You can find everything at www.benjaminbolshan.net.